Thank you for being here today. We have a good audience. We've had opportunity to pray and sing together, and now we want to open God's Word and consider principles that are important for us today as Christians. We're very thankful for your presence here. If you're visiting with us, we want you to know that you're our honored guest, and we would invite you to come and and be with us here every time that you can. We sang some songs this morning about a faithful God, about a God who has a mighty arm that we can lean on. We serve a creator of order. We go back to the very first chapter of the Bible, and we read about a God who created this universe. And each day as He created, He set things in order. Through the sixth day of His crowning creation, that being us, putting a soul within us that's in the image of God. As we consider God going forward from that point of creation in the inspired Word, the Old Testament, we find a silver thread that goes through all of Scripture. It's because God ordered something before He even created the earth that we see fulfilled some 4,000 years later, and that is Jesus Christ, our Savior. In Genesis 3, verse 15, we have the first prophecy of Christ. And then we see things ordered all the way through the Old Testament until Christ comes in the time of the Roman Empire, just as it was prophesied. He was born in the city of Bethlehem, just as it was prophesied. All of these things because we serve a God of order, a God of patterns, a God of faithfulness. As he worked through the Old Testament and dealt with Noah, he gave Noah order in how to build the ark, how to save his family from that impending doom. As he dealt with Abraham and made his promises to Abraham, he told him what would happen in the future. There was a land promise, there was a family promise, And there was a promise then that was fulfilled for all of mankind through Jesus Christ who came in the lineage of Abraham. Coming to the law of Moses, as God delivered that law, which was a shadow of His redemptive plan that would be fulfilled in Christ, that law was a law of order. Think about the building of the tabernacle and all the instructions that was given about how to build the tabernacle. It was a work of a pattern, a detailed pattern that God gave. As we move then into the time of Christ, He was born of a virgin at age 12, already studying God's laws and orders. At age 30, He began His personal ministry, and He went about doing good and teaching and bringing about the redemptive plan that came to be when Christ died on the cross for us. After Christ died and ascended back to heaven, He gave His truth that was left with the apostles. The Holy Spirit came back, and God gave order to the new covenant. He gave order to the church. He gave order to our worship. We study 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Verse number 33 says, God is not the author of confusion. He tells us how to put our worship service together in a way that pleases Him. You come to the end of that chapter in verse 40, and it says that we should do all things decently and in order. As God put the church together, He did so with order and with a pattern. And this morning we want to look at one particular aspect of that order. And that's how the church, the New Testament church, grows to maturity. There are four steps to a church from the time it is planted until the time it reaches maturity. These steps are given very clearly in God's Word. And we want to look at these steps because it's important that we follow those steps today that we restore the New Testament church that we read about in Scripture. God does not give us an inferior 
arrangement for anything that He teaches us to do. And that certainly is the case with the church. Remember in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, the Bible says the church is the manifold wisdom of God. That it presents His eternal purpose. The church is important. It's important that God's order be carried forward into this church. And so let's look at this order, this arrangement that we find in the Scriptures. It begins with step one, the Great Commission. We find that an organized church sent out an evangelist. And this evangelist went into a new area of work where the gospel had not been taught. And he taught the gospel in that area according to what Christ left as his great commission. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. This work order that Christ left His apostles and disciples. He said, you need to go, you need to teach the gospel. People will be converted, they will be baptized, and then you need to, as a second part, teach them to observe all things that I have commanded. This was the way that the church was to be planted. And we see that carried out through these evangelists who went and did that very thing. They preached the gospel. Here's another account of the Great Commission in Mark chapter 16, 15 and 16. And He said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized will be saved. There's going to be a lot of people that reject the teaching of the gospel. Christ made that clear. He said there's two roads. There's a broad way. Most people are going to select. Then there's a narrow road. And there's going to be few that find it. But God is looking for those hearts that will receive the gospel. When they receive the gospel, they put faith and trust in God that Christ is the Son of God. They're willing to repent of their sin and confess Christ as the Son of God, and then they're baptized, and this brings them into a right relationship with God. Paul talked about the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. He said the facts of the gospel are the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. That's what the evangelists were to teach when they went into these areas of the world where people were lost. People believed. People had enough faith that they submitted to a form of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And we're taught that to be the case in Romans chapter 6. That when we're baptized, we die to our old man. We are buried in baptism into the death of Christ. We contact the blood of Christ. It takes our sin away. We arise in newness of life. And we read at that point in time when we obey the gospel that God places us within the congregation. This is how the congregations are to be planted. In Acts 2 verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Men do not add other men to the church. It's an operation of God. Colossians 2, verse 12. Baptism is an operation that we have faith in that God takes away our sin and places it far from us when we obey through baptism and we're put into His kingdom. We are placed within the universal church and also within the local congregation where we will be active in the, in the vineyard of our Lord. Once these congregations are planted, then the Bible teaches that that evangelist that went and planted the congregation, an evangelist, he or multiple evangelists, or maybe a combination, but the evangelist is to take responsibility in the infant congregation and they are to set things in order. Titus chapter 1, verse number 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. 
So the second step of setting things in order, the evangelist is to bring these people that obeyed the gospel into a greater knowledge of Jesus Christ, to teach them all things that they're to do as a Christian. As he does that, he's going to teach others to teach. And we're going to see that was a part of setting things in order. Here in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, Paul, who did the work of an evangelist as the apostle to the Gentiles, trained evangelists under him, Timothy and Titus. We just read of Titus and his work as an evangelist. In Creed, he was to set things in order. He was to ordain elders in every city. Elders, plural, in each city, singular. So there were to be teachers that were trained, and then some of these teachers were to be ordained as elders to take the oversight of the congregation. Let's look at 2 Timothy 2, verse number 2. Again, Paul speaking this time to Timothy, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit thou to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. One part of setting things in order in a congregation, which the evangelist is responsible for, is to train teachers. These men are to use their talent to be able to learn God's information, then be trained where they can share it with others. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, we begin to see that there is a preparation for men to lead the congregation. Part of these men that are taught how to teach and to edify the congregation publicly and from house to house, as Paul said, I taught you both publicly and from house to house. This is the teaching of the congregation. But more specifically, the public part is to be done by the men. They're to be trained to do that. They're to be prepared to lead. We begin to see characteristics here. Paul is telling Timothy that he needs to prepare these men that are able to teach. He needs to prepare them to lead the congregation. We see these characteristics in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. This is a faithful saying, if a man desire the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. That word bishop is one of the four primary words that the Scriptures use in talking about the work within these congregations to oversee and feed the flock. The other words are elder, the other words are shepherd, and the other word is pastor. All four of these words mean the same office or work within the church. And here, Paul is telling Timothy, when you go into these congregations and you do your work as an evangelist, you need to prepare the men who are going to serve as the bishops within the congregation. Verse number 2, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. Why would a man preparing for leadership in the congregation need to be able to teach? Because when we reach that mature congregation, the order that God put in place, He is the person that is to take the lead in feeding the flock, teaching the flock. So these teachers are trained, and some of them, as they develop these characteristics, they're not a novice any longer, as we'll notice here. Then these men are prepared to move into place to lead the congregation. Verse 3, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now I want you to think about the Great Commission. 
These evangelists were to go into the community, they were to teach the gospel, and they were to convert people into the church. And then they were to teach them to observe all things. Think about these qualifications of an elder. These are things that Christ teaches that every Christian should, should aspire to. This is what the evangelist does to prepare people that can lead the congregation. He teaches them to observe the commandments of Christ. And these things are specifically listed when it comes to the tools that a man needs to properly lead the congregation. In Titus chapter 1, we read in verse 5 already, where Titus was told to set things in order. Setting things in order would be preparing these men. He didn't immediately go in and ordain elders in those churches, but he had to prepare them. And so Paul gives him a list. He says in verse 6, If a man be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. Notice at the start of verse 7, it refers to this work as a bishop. Back in verse 5, remember he was to ordain elders in every church. Elder and bishop are used interchangeably here. That's how we know this is talking about the same work within the congregation. Verse 8, continuing, "...but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding the fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict." Why would a person need to have a knowledge of the Bible to, to take those who contradict God's Word and to uh, train them or to come to them and teach them the right way? Because again, the elder is the one to feed the flock and to oversee the flock. And these were the admonitions given to these evangelists. If we want to know what the work of an evangelist is, we can find it in this pattern. He was to go to plant the congregation, to set things in order, and then he was to ordain those elders and deacons who he had worked with to develop to the point that they could serve in this position as the overseer of the congregation. We read... In 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. You know, the apostles were in the first organized congregation that we read about in the Scriptures. That church began in Jerusalem, just as our God of order had prophesied through His prophets in the Old Testament. This church began in Jerusalem. The apostles were there. They were a team of men that set things in order. They had to be a witness of the resurrected Christ to be an apostle. Peter was an apostle, and he helped there in Jerusalem, but he also served as an elder. Because we no longer have apostles with us, God's order put in place once that original Church was established, once it was spread out, the evangelists went out and they began to plant additional congregations. We read of Philip going to Samaria, and he taught the gospel, and people were converted in, into the church in Samaria. That was one of the first churches after Jerusalem that was started, and we see this pattern is put into place. But Peter goes on to talk about what the elders' responsibilities are. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. We're using the New King James this morning for the majority of our text. This one verse, I use the King James because it specifies feeding the church. The New King James says shepherding the flock of God. What do shepherds do? Shepherds take care of the flock, all of their needs. One of the primary things they do is feed their flock. 
they also take the oversight. So here's the same passage in the New King James Version, and verse 2 says, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. And so these elders, as they are ordained by the evangelist and put in the position, they are to feed the flock, they are to take the oversight of the flock, and they are to do it by example. 1 Peter 5.3, Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being in samples to the flock. The church is called to follow the elders. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. So these elders' responsibility to feed, to oversee, they're to give the example. Now the church is called on, once the elders give the example, as Paul said, as I follow Christ, follow me. As the elders follow Christ, the church is to follow that example. They're also to submit. Verse 17 of Hebrews 13, Obey, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. These are the concepts of bringing this church to maturity. It started out with people that were lost in the world. They didn't know the gospel. They heard the gospel. They believed it. They obeyed it. God added them to the church. The evangelist taught them about the characteristics that are needed to be a disciple of Christ. Taught the men to, to be able to teach within the public assembly. Took some of these men that displayed maturity in their qualifications and now they're being put in to oversee the church and we see that the church is to submit to that oversight. There were also to be deacons ordained within the church. Now we've talked about 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. We're going to pick up with the very next verse and we're going to read about this servant, the deacon. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, the wise must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well." We read those two lists of elder qualifications. There's 28 total elder qualifications listed. If you combine the list in Timothy and Titus, and you take out the repetition where, where the same qualification is given, there's 28 qualifications. And these are given by the Holy Spirit because these qualifications are important to allow an elder to do his duties. Here we find the qualifications of the deacon. They're not as long. A deacon is not required to be apt to teach. He's not, he doesn't have the responsibility to feed the flock, to oversee the flock, to contradict false doctrine that might be brought in. That's not his responsibility. He's to serve. The word deacon itself means servant. And he is to serve under the oversight of the congregation for the needs of the congregation. He's to have these qualifications that are listed here. The wives of elders and deacons, they're to have certain characteristics. I believe verse 11 applies to the wives of both the elder and the deacon as they serve this congregation. And I would submit to you that this is God's plan for the mature church. Every one of us need to have in our mind what the vision should be for the church. We were in Belize for about 11 days a week or so ago, and we went to a brand new congregation the third time that they'd had an assembly. It's in San Antonio, Orange Walk, Belize. And they had 28 people there. 
They had an evangelist there, Ramiro, who stood up here and gave a report about Belize a couple of months ago. He was there. He had called that meeting to order. Some of those people had been converted and baptized into the church by his work, and others that did the work of an evangelist there. They are starting brand new. What do they need to be looking for as far as a mature congregation of the Lord's body? We see that presented because we have a God of order that put this pattern in place for us. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Paul is worried about the Corinthians. And he said, I fear for you because I'm afraid you're going to be taken into corruption by Satan the same way Eve was, away from the simplicity of Christ. I would submit to you today that these plans, these orders, these patterns, these blueprints that we find in God's Word are simple. If we're objective about looking at them and following them, they are are simple to follow. But what happens is Satan gets into the hearts and minds of men and they decide they have a better way to do this than the pattern that we find in God's Word. I think that we have to be very careful. Our congregation here at Northwest is somewhat unique in the city of Plainview. People come to visit and they say, who's your preacher? We don't have a preacher. We have eight elders. We rotate our Sundays. The elders teach or they designate someone to teach. And what we're doing is trying to follow the pattern of the New Testament to restore the New Testament church. There's over 40 congregations listed in the New Testament where these type of entities were planted, where this institution of God was planted, and never one time do these congregations present this is the preacher of this congregation. There's a lot of men that do preaching and the work of an evangelist. We've talked about some of them. Philip and Apollos, Paul, Silas, Barnabas, Timothy, Titus. These were all men that did the work of an evangelist. We never read about them taking a position in a congregation and staying there and being the pulpit person who does all the teaching. What we read about is elders who fed and and took care of the congregation and the oversight. And we read about initially evangelist training teachers, and then we see the concept of the elders taking the oversight and training teachers. And that way we have elder-led congregations with multiple teachers. I believe that that's God's pattern in the Scripture, and I I believe that we see it displayed in the things that we're talking about this morning. So the evangelists planted the congregation, they set in order, they ordained elders and deacons, and then the fourth step was to train up and send out. You'll notice at this point the evangelist is outside the local congregation. He has fulfilled his responsibility to set things in order to ordain elders, and now the elders are taking the oversight. There's deacons there serving the congregation. There are men being taught to be teachers within the congregation. And now we have a self-sustaining body of Christ where everyone is doing their part to bring about the concept that God had in mind when He set up the order within the church. And so this organized church sends the evangelist out to start again. Maybe he goes back to the church that he came from originally and he connects there and he helps to to check in on them. We have this text from 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, and 6. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. So Paul planted the congregation at Thessalonica. He didn't just plant it and work there, and then abandon them. He continued to check on them. He wrote them this letter. He sent Timothy to go and check on this congregation. 
Verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. So we see the concept was for the evangelist to go back, to check in, to assist the leaders of, of the organized congregation in carrying forward the will of God within these local congregations. These evangelists were sent to a new work area. If an evangelist goes and takes up residence in a local congregation, and he becomes the pulpit preacher, and he preaches for a perpetual period of time, then how's he going to go and do the work of an evangelist to plant another congregation, or to, to help go back and revisit the congregations that he's planted? Romans 10, verse 15, And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Once a congregation is organized in this mature way, then the evangelist can leave and he can go start another congregation. He can replicate the work of an evangelist. He can train. The church is the one that trains these young men. Titus 2, 6-8. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. So the evangelist goes on, and he starts another work, and the, the work of training young men to be teachers is ongoing. This congregation, which was established in the mid-50s over at 11th and Amarillo Street, they started at that point in time with a vision to train young men to teach. The Wednesday night program was to put the converted younger men, the unexperienced men, on a program where they would have an opportunity to receive some help to develop to where they could do public teaching, and then that they could practice to do public teaching. When I was 13 years old, I was baptized. And a few weeks later, I was asked if I would participate on the Wednesday night program. And the first thing I did, I got up and read a chapter. And then before long, I developed a short sermon. And that's been 64 minus 13 is how long that since that started. But this congregation has continued to do that. And we have about 40 people in our midst, men who can get up and give a lesson, either on a Wednesday night or a Sunday night or a Sunday morning. Do you think that happened by accident? It didn't happen by accident because the church, as far as I've been a part of in my lifetime, did not have a professional man speaking from the pulpit, but it had a team of elders who had a vision to develop this, and they trained young men, and we still have that vision today. We want to be training teachers within the congregation. That's something that's important for us to be able to go on, to move forward. Evangelists can be trained within the congregation. That's the concept that we have in this order that God gave for us. An evangelist can come back from a new work area to an established congregation where a person, has, a young man has grown up. He's been taught to observe these things, to seek to be qualified to, to be a leader within the church. He has a talent to be an evangelist. He steps out with the more seasoned evangelist and he goes with that evangelist. And he goes, he's trained with information, he's trained with Bible knowledge, and then he goes and he is mentored on the job training to develop his skills to do the work of an evangelist. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, These things I write to you, though I come to you, I hope to come to you shortly, 
But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. We're going to notice a specific example in Scripture here in a moment, and that example is Timothy, who was brought up in congregations, who was taught by his grandmother and his mother, who participated in his local congregation, and he was identified to have the talent to do the work of an evangelist. Here Paul is telling him, you need to train up your men so that they know how to behave themselves or to conduct themselves in the house of God. Remember the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Evangelists can be trained within the local body. If it's organized in this way, elders can be trained. Titus 2, 1 and 2. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and patience. Do you recognize these characteristics? The same, many of the same characteristics that elders need to be qualified. Titus, as he was training within the church concept in the body, he was to be training the older men, not novice, but the older men that they have these characteristics. And once this mature congregation is in place, these elders can be trained with what's going on within the congregation. This is the four steps. The planning, the setting in order, the ordaining of the leaders, those that serve the congregation, and then the congregation training and sending out people. And we repeat that process. And over the last 2,000 years, this process has been repeated over and over again. Today in India, it's being repeated. Today in Nigeria, it's being repeated. In Belize, it's being repeated because this is the pattern that we find in God's Word. Now let's look at an example of this from the Scriptures. You know, God communicates with us with commands. He tells us what we need to do, and then He often shows us examples. When He commands and gives us these commands by example, then that makes it even stronger. And I would submit today that we have these examples in the New Testament. We're going to take Antioch as an example of an organized congregation. And we're going to read in Acts 13, 1 through 3. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Okay, here's a congregation. They've got five teachers. I wonder if that was by accident. Saul was there. He was an apostle. He was evidently a very strong teacher. Why didn't he do all the teaching? Because there was a different pattern. There was a different vision. There were five teachers named here. Look in the next verse. Then having fasted, or two and three, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. This being separated in verse 2 is the same idea as being ordained. The laying on of the hands in verse 3 was the idea that Paul and Barnabas were teaching in that congregation, but they were set aside to go and do the work of an evangelist. How was that possible? If Saul was doing all the teaching in Antioch and no one else was trained to do that teaching, and he left, or he and Barnabas left, who would continue that teaching and that training that is so important within the body of Christ? But because they had multiple teachers, they sent people out. And we, we began reading very quickly that Paul and Barnabas went to Cyprus and Asia Minor. This is called Paul's first missionary journey. And he went, Acts 13 and 5 through 14 and 20, and he planted congregations. He did exactly what we said that God's order called for. They converted people. They taught the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. People believed in that. They followed their faith and they obeyed 
through baptism, and the Lord added them to the church, just as we already noticed. These churches are named the places that they went. Did they have enemies? Did they have resistance? Great enemies, great resistance, people pushing back, people fighting. But there were people that accepted the gospel and obeyed it, and the Lord added them to the church. Paul and Barnabas began to train teachers in those congregations. Acts 14, 21 to 22. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. And I would submit to you today that the strengthening of the souls exhorting them to continue in the faith was the same thing that was done initially at Jerusalem as these people were trained, as they went out, as what happened in Antioch initially. There were men being trained to teach in these congregations where Paul and Barnabas were working. Did Paul and Barnabas think it was important to have the overseers of these congregations? Acts 14, 23 so when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Look at the word elder, plural. Look at the word church, singular. They were putting teams of men in place to feed and oversee these congregations. That was the process. That's what we studied, the pattern. And here we see the example of these things happening. Philippian. One and one, Paul and Timotheus, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. Paul planted the church at Philippi. He later wrote them a letter. Who did he address in the letter? Did he address the reverend? Did he address the preacher or the minister? He addressed saints who were all the body of Christ, and he addressed bishops and deacons. That's who was in this congregation where these evangelists had worked. Did Paul and Barnabas stay in one place and fill the, fulfill, or fill the pulpit in those places? Look to Acts 14, 26-28. From where they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. From there they sailed to Antioch. So we see after completing this evangelistic tour, they went back to Antioch. And they gave a report to them, verse 27 and 28. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that He had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Paul and Barnabas stayed there. They worked with them. They were revisiting this organized church that had sent them out originally. Acts 15, verse 35, Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So Paul and Barnabas finished the first missionary journey. They came back to Antioch. They gave a report. They moved on to Jerusalem for a meeting. They did other things. And then they came back even later to this congregation at Antioch. And I want you to know who was notice who was doing the teaching in this congregation. We said there were five in Acts 13 verse 1. They went back a time period later, and the Bible doesn't even list the teachers. It says that Paul and Barnabas was there teaching and preaching with many others also. Did that happen by chance after Paul and Barnabas left? Were there a lot of teachers developed just by chance? That was the vision of the congregation, and they worked on that. And they trained men that would be able to, to teach. And so we see these examples teach us exactly the pattern that we noticed earlier. Paul and Silas revisited the churches that they planted in Asia. And we find that recorded here in Acts 15. Paul, 
said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now it turns out that Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement. John Mark had traveled with him earlier and returned to Jerusalem before they had completed their touring. Paul didn't want to take John Mark. Barnabas did. As it turns out, Paul selected Silas because we read in verse 40, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. So Paul and Silas went back and they started revisiting. As we said, was the work of an evangelist. Paul and Silas find Timothy. We alluded to this earlier in Acts 16, verses 1 and 2. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Timothy had been taught the Word of God, and he was active in these congregations, Lystra and Iconium. And he had displayed a talent to do the work of an evangelist. So they discover him within these congregations. And then Paul and Silas take Timothy in the next verse. Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For they all knew that his father was Greek. So we see this happening. These older evangelists were selecting these younger men. Specifically in the case of Paul and Timothy and Titus. And he trained these men. Today we have a similar thing that happens within our uh, sister congregations. We have evangelists that are working. Young men are identified that have that talent. They do training with older evangelists. And hopefully they are equipped and they are able to to do that work. Why do we do it that way? There's a lot of other ways that people select to be trained to do work within the church. This is the example that we find in Scripture. Remember we have a God of order. He's ordered everything that we know about Him from the very beginning. I don't believe that He left these matters to chance. I believe there's a simple pattern that we find in God's Word and I believe when we follow it that we will be blessed in doing so. So after Paul and, and Silas find Timothy and, and they select him, what happens? The three of them go to Greece. What do they do? They start repeating the cycle again. They go start planting churches in other places. You know, as we read the completion of the New Testament, that's the pattern that we see. And we read that all the known areas of the earth were evangelized before the end of the writing of the Old Testament. I'm sorry, the New Testament. How did that happen? It happened with this pattern that we've seen today that is displayed in God's Word. We need to learn this pattern. We need to follow it. We need to repeat it wherever we have the opportunity and someone might say, well, we have elders and deacons here. Why is this important for us? We need to understand the process. We need to understand the duties of elders and deacons. We need to understand the difference in an evangelist and a pulpit preacher. We need to understand the concept that all of us have a role within the body of Christ and that we need to fulfill that role to the very best of our ability. What is our goal for Northwest Church of Christ? We want faithful saints that are growing closer and closer to God. We want faithful men that are giving effort to be teachers, that are studying God's Word so that they can teach others also. We want faithful elders that are leading, that are following the patterns of God's Word, that are overseeing and feeding the flock, and doing it by example. We want faithful deacons that are serving the congregation. We want everyone working together. What can you do to help follow this pattern that we've studied today? Be ready to do your part, whatever that part might be. Over and over in Scripture, the, the congregations compared to the human body and how different parts have a different function. 
And we often make this appeal. But everybody does not fall into each, every one of these roles. But we all can do something. And we need to be ready to do our part. How can you help stay humble and work together? This work is not about us, it's about Christ. And whatever we can do, wherever we can do it, to fit into this master plan that God has given us, we need to humbly do that work within the church. We can aspire to grow in greater service. This is something else that every one of us can do. Challenge ourselves to do more and more. Especially to our young men, we want to encourage you to get involved, to be steady in your involvement, to put your talents to use within the kingdom of God. When I was about 14 years old, Diana's granddad, Brother Joe Pinkerton, invited me over to his house, and he set me down in the living room, and he read me the qualifications of an elder. I was 14. I wasn't the husband of one wife. I had hardly started my Christian walk, but he put those qualifications in front of me, and he said, we have to have good leaders to lead the church. And he said, you need to start right now. Look at these qualifications. See how you can improve all along to meet these qualifications. And he put in my mind whether I ever was in an opportunity to serve as an elder, I should be ready to lead the church. And he emphasized that with me. And that stuck in my mind. I still remember the conversation today. And I want that conversation with each of our young men here. I want that to resonate in your mind, that you have the opportunity as a member of God's church, this manifold wisdom of God with eternal purpose to serve in the plan that He's put forth. Let's look to do everything that we can to serve within the kingdom of God. I leave the message of the morning with you. I know that this material isn't covered a lot. In fact, Titus told me a few months ago that he didn't remember these concepts being taught on. He requested that we do a sermon like this to put this fresh in everyone's mind. If you have questions about this, if there's something I've stated that you don't understand, we'd be glad to sit down and, and study any of these things in depth with you. At this time, we want to offer an invitation of the Lord. We know that this is Christ's invitation to come unto Him to submit to Him, to follow Him, to become His disciple. If you haven't followed through in obeying the gospel, we would encourage you to do that today. If you're here and you would like the prayers of the church, that would benefit you in your walk, in your service within His kingdom. We would like to invite you to come forward and we will pray with you and for you this morning. If we can help you in any way, please come be seated on the front as we sing the song of invitation.